Hi guys and welcome to I guess the first this first edition of uh, Fightside Pod the Fightside Boxing Podcast. I'm Lukas Fenrich Fenrich and uh, I just mispronounced my own name. I'm Lukas Fenrich and um, I'm going to be the host for this this version of the podcast. And today I have a guest with me, uh, Mr. Dan Albert, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Hello. And um, yeah, I guess we should get rolling. Um, our agenda for the day is the fights that have just happened. Well, one fight that has just happened, and a couple of fights for next week. Um, so we're going to talk about Terence Crawford because we're all very impressed with Terence Crawford. We're going to talk about his fight, his fight we, he, he just had with um, with Sean Porter. We're going to talk about a potential fight with Errol Spence that hopefully comes together. And then I'm going to try to convince Dan and therefore everyone else to care <laughs> about Stephen Fulton versus Brandon Figueroa, Figueroa because that is a much more interesting fight this weekend than Teofimo Lopez, which is what everyone's talking about. So let's get started. Terence Crawford, Dan, you saw the fight, I assume. Uh, I did. I wasn't able to see it the night of, but I saw it two days later. Um... Terence Crawford is really, really good. It's just unfortunate he doesn't quite have the competition to really, really see how good he is. Is like, but I think everyone's kind of on the same page about that. Porter, um, Porter's always been kind of one of those guys who's I think best described as he's not quite elite, but he's kind of this slight step down from being that kind of that special fighter. Yeah, he's actually kind of rare in that he gives he gives every elite fighter he's faced he's given a real test. Like he doesn't get swamped out by anyone, but he's not—he's not powerful powered himself. Like he's really close, but he's not there. You know. Yeah, it's uh, he's basically um he he's basically one of those elite gatekeepers who's not ever going to be like the top dog, but he's good enough to pose enough questions for only the elite guys to really really pass cleanly. Yeah, if you beat him comfortably, you're a top dog. Is basically. So, yeah, and I mean the last two guys to clearly do that are well, Terence Crawford, who is the first guy to actually finish him too, and um, Errol Spence Jr. And well, the whole Crawford Spence thing we can get to later, but um, yeah. So Cr- Crawford's win over um, over Porter, I think um, a lot of people had this fight kind of close. I think on the scoring. And although I kind of see why, um, I, I don't exactly kind of agree with some of it. Because um, the thing about Crawford is that I've always noticed is Crawford is always kind of a guy who doesn't mind starting slow. But he's excellent at, as we find out later on at this fight, it's like very end. He's like the king of flipping that switch and then killing you. Yeah, that's his his specialty. He's done that before. Yeah, it's um, basically... I didn't complete. I didn't score the fight like completely, so I couldn't tell you what I thought my score was. But it felt like one where it felt like the fight was close, and at no point did I think Sean Porter was going to win. Like even if I had had him up on the cards, there was no point where I thought he's going to win this fight because it was always no. There was um yeah, because it was always for for me. Sorry, carry on. You're good. I think a, a good way of looking at this is regardless of the score, like someone was very in control of the fight and the other one wasn't. Yeah. Like, yeah, you could think if someone who doesn't know anything about boxing or someone who knows a little bit about boxing, I don't want to insult people who had Crawford up, uh, who had um, 
brought her up because um, some knowledgeable people did. But I think um, if you watch the fight sort of without any context, then you could be deciding that Crawford was on top at times. But if you know the history of the two fighters, you know really, you knew what was coming. And you knew that Porter, that Crawford mm-hmm. was setting things up and learning on the job and getting ready for the finish. <laughs> yeah, I think um, the, the thing that really decided this fight was basically how Crawford decides to control entries of the other opponent and how he creates his own opportunities. Because a lot of Porter's offense is kind of built around... I said Porter's very dogged, and I think that's a great way of looking at it here. Porter likes to make guys uncomfortable because he's durable enough to, like, wage those kind of fights. So Porter was trying to always get in on Bud in order to, like, make him uncomfortable. Would really... And at first, Bud kind of chose to fight him in orthodox to kind of, like, assess if he could do that. And when he did... Crawford basically just switched to southpaw for most of the fight and shut him down in a few simple ways. The key things were mostly his lead hand, the threat of counters, especially the rear hooks to the body, to, paired with the double threat of, to the head. And then later on, he started mixing those up with the uppercut because Porter started dipping in. So that created a triple threat off of that. But if he couldn't time with those counters, he usually just worked off of that check hook or the jab to just keep Porter out of range in a way so Porter's only choice was kind of to j- come in behind his punches and try to like wage an alley fight and then Crawford kind of shut that down too just by getting those underhooks and just turning him so it, it it kind of was a comprehensive like difference in ring craft really in, in terms of how Crawford controlled that fight yeah yeah and I, I think the uh, the stage was set before the fight because if you saw um Porter talking in the build-up and he was saying that um, he thinks Crawford is a fighter who likes to get into a rhythm and what he's going to do is break that rhythm and that was like immediately like alarm bells you know ring ring because what what Crawford likes to do is set a rhythm pretend he's in a rhythm and then smack you when you fall into it and if if Porter wasn't aware of that then he was going to get himself into trouble and like that was pretty much exactly what happened you know his Porter's bullying, bullying in, trying to, trying to set, trying to break a rhythm that Crawford really is wasn't in. He wasn't in a set, committed to any set timing. He was re- reacting to what Porter was doing, and the more he did it, the more, the more comfortable he was doing what he wanted to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of um, we we talk about taking the initiative a lot with fights. Um, and some may ask, what does that mean? Taking the initiative isn't necessarily just being first. It means kind of controlling the engagements constantly. And that's kind of what Crawford did here because um, he recognized the simple threat was, okay, you have to blitz in on me because that's how you get in. But if I deny those little tools you're using to get in with mine, you, you will have to think harder, whereas I can just continue building more ways to just shut you down. And, and that's just kind of the thing Crawford did. So it's like, Porter has the right ideas. Like, you have to take the initiative away from Crawford, like, no matter what. But you can't just do... But I think this was a good example of, like, it doesn't matter how durable you are or how much you can, like, disguise some things. Crawford does find ways to get to you. And um, I think one of Crawford's other fights really exemplifies this. I'm going to butcher his name. I think it's Kukashis. That's that's his name. Um... Lucas, you yeah, might know. Um, oh, um, 
on a, it on was a, a few game. fights ago. Um, yeah, but basically, what Crawford does is exactly what Lukash says. He'll lure you kind of into a set rhythm or kind of a pathway, but it's a trap because he'll instantly switch gears and then punish you for those little things. Because in terms of like the best boxers in the world right now, I, I, I struggle to think anyone who really like understands punishing margins as much as Crawford does because when he picks up on something, like he will exploit it. So there are like little moments in, in these fights where Maybe you're in the clinch with him, and maybe you're trying to frame off. Well, he'll just use that to hit you and get out, and then you're having a hard time resetting. Maybe he switches on you and hits you from orthodox into that leaping left hook, and then has already switched back and has started jabbing you again. So it's little things like that. Like Crawford is the master of like setting a certain tempo, but the tempo is always under kind of his terms. Usually, and Porter Porter's right. You have to disrupt that, but the, it's kind of a question of how you can do that is the problem. Yeah, like, and yeah, and you're not going to do it by you know by. It's not about he does. It's not about his you know. It's his timing varies with the time, so you can't rely on learning his timing and trying to crush through it. And I think the other thing which comes into the, what you're saying about the punishing is he's also as good as anyone there is at. Um, laying traps not just for a couple of seconds but he spends whole rounds coaching his opponent to do certain things and um and then punishing them and like so he will he'll sort of it will look like he's rewarding certain behavior like porter will be doing will be coming in in a certain way and it will seem like he's got success that will happen a few times and then suddenly he gets bonked for it and it's you know, you can you can say, oh, he's um, you could. It's entirely possible to believe in a completely plausible belief that it's just taking Crawford that much time to adjust. But um, it's um, if have you did you see in your viewing? Did you watch back as far as um? Oh, damn, I've forgotten his name. Um, <laughs> it was a uh, one of his earlier fights. Um, give me one second. This is very professional. Um, I um, I only saw. I only saw, I think, his last four or five, to be honest, due to time constraints. Yeah, but it was, um, it was Thomas Delorme, so it would have been before that. It was back at one forty um, against mm-hmm. Thomas Delorme. He um, Delorme spent the first six rounds, or the first five rounds, basically seeming to walk through Crawford's punches, and then at the end of round five, um, his uh, coach was telling was telling Crawford a few things, and one of the things he said was, um, "Pick it up a bit now." And um, Crawford went, mm-hmm, okay, and then just walked out and smoked him within 30 seconds of the round opening. And he said in the interview afterwards that he'd been putting his punches for five rounds in order to get Delorme comfortable with the idea of being hit by him. Like, Delorme was relaxing, I said, I can take this guy's power, I'm going to come in and uh, come in a bit harder. And as soon as he was comfortable with that and he, he thought for certain, okay, he thinks he can take my power. He switched it up and knocked him out straight away. And it's like, there's no one else who does that, really. And uh, yeah, no, no one really like boxing consistently. It kind of does like uh, that just out of nowhere. Yeah. Like Lomachenko will touch you a lot and basically change tempo on you, but it's more obvious. With Crawford, there's like real no set rhythm. Yeah with it like no obvious like discernible rhythm it just kind of comes out of nowhere and that's part of what makes him so dangerous 
and why he's been hurting and finishing guys who historically don't get finished. Yeah. But it's I also mean, just um, go on. Yeah, that was my call before the fight. So it was um, that um, you know Porter's a good fighter. He uh, he disguises his ball rushes quite well. But at the end of the day, he starts at a certain point and he's trying to get to a certain point, right? And uh, once he's there, he's there. And mm-hmm. at, at some point, I felt Crawford was always going to find a spot where he's going to come back just a little bit further, and. Um, and then unleash the power, and Crawford's going to be chasing. Um, Porter was going to be chasing, way, trying to get to him, without considering his balance from then on, and it was going to, you know, it was mm-hmm. going to get, get knocked out. And it's pretty much exactly what yeah. The, the other thing that's yeah, the other thing that's really prevalent um, about Crawford, besides kind of the like tempo, is the subtlety in what he does because. Um, as far as uh, I talked about Ringcraft earlier, how you manage space, and you see that with Crawford too, like especially in his southpaw stance. If you watch his fight with Brooke, it, it's the most prevalent because that's how he eventually hurts him mm-hmm. and finishes him. But you'll always see Crawford working with his jab and slowly inching his way inside to set up that outside foot position consistently. And sometimes he'll even bait it the other way around where he draws the other guy in just so he can take a slight step back to get that outside foot position yeah. and he'll start fucking and then he'll start fucking with them and going like nope I'm actually not going to do that I'm just going to pivot out behind my check hook okay. or nope I'm just going to blitz in behind the like rear hand oh now I'm an orthodox and I can hit you really hard with the right hook I can do that whenever I want and the thing about it, it's not just rhythm change it creates the expectations and it establishes initiative and that's what makes Crawford so dangerous because he surprises, he can cracks, and I mean, worst of all, when he has his opponent hurt, like it's not nothing's wasted at all. Oh, like he usually, if he gets them hurt, he puts them down. Yeah, he might be the best finisher in the sport. Like, there's a couple guys at the top who are extremely good finishers, but um, yeah, Crawford's a uh, ruthless, and he loves it. Like you can see that he loves hurting people, which is a. Uh, scary yeah and, and it's also like he it's not it, it's not just that if you choose to go after him he can engage you like um like he engaged porter multiple times when porter was like like there was a point where he was just like yeah i'll i'll fight you and then crawford absolutely wasn't bothered by that and i just traded with him on purpose and then was like nah never mind and, but it wasn't like uh, oh i don't want to trade with you at all it was more like oh oh, who cares, actually, I can do this as well. But it's also like, again, another fight was like a few fights before with um, Kvalkas, um, whom I mentioned earlier. There's a point where he gets a knockdown on him where Kvalkas starts like trading with him and then Crawford starts trading back on purpose and that just draws the straight line of fire from Kvalkas and then Crawford just hits him with a check hook and drops him. It's just stuff like that. It's always about traps and setups with, and then taking those little margins by Crawford, and that's really what makes him so so good and so dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's yeah completely un unreadable for his opponent. Opponent, I'd say is. Uh, I mean, he might be readable, but not by someone, not by anyone he's fought so far, and I don't think by anyone that's in his near future. Which is a yeah. It's um, it, it's like I I would suspect a someone with a good enough lead hand to match his a versatile enough lead hand 
who can press him back more than he can press them is going to have success. Um, Enforce more of those inside changes where he can't create setups on the outside, but he's still going to have answers on the inside because he's just ludicrously strong by the looks of it and just can and is willing to turn them against the ropes and then basically use the ref to kind of like separate them. But which is some good old school things that you don't see from a lot of modern boxers. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's I, I think a big key to it is um, Porter has the right idea. Take, don't let him control the tempo. Create your own rhythm. But you're gonna have to do that. You you can't. I don't think you can afford to play this slow paced fight game with Crawford at this weight class. I, I just don't think you can. No. Well, that's that's the reason why a lot of people want him to fight Josh Taylor. And stylistically, Josh Taylor would be a hard fight for him. He's you know he's a fast paced, high volume inside fighter who can also box. He can box on the outside, but he's very good in the pocket. He's very good in the clinch. And he's hard to rough up, but I think he's just too small, and he probably isn't quite as good a mm-hmm. you know he isn't quite as good a boxer as Crawford anyway. But um, he's just too small to enforce I, that that bullying style and push him back consistently. I think. And yeah, I, I think that's kind of was my read too, because as good as Taylor's inside game is, it's um, it, it's hard to really like if Porter is a fairly fairly strong welterweight himself yeah. and Crawford kind of just handled him strength-wise whenever they tied up to the point that it's kind of crazy to think that someone even with Taylor's accolades for fighting on the inside is going to be able to do much better. Yeah. Yeah, no I don't I don't I don't see it. I think it would, would be a good fight in future but uh, yeah. Um I'm not picking I'm not picking yeah. Taylor in that. Nope. Um but there, but there is someone else that everyone wants Terence Crawford to fight, though. There is the the the, the boogeyman on the horizon who uh, left the arena after the fight, Errol Spence. Oh, oh! No. Did you see that? Did... Oh yeah, Errol Spence. Um, I did not actually see that. That's amazing. All the only thing I did know about after the fight was Porter basically considering disowning his dad. But you know, <laughs> yeah, that was that was harsh. What did you think of the stoppage? The stoppage, um, I, I didn't think it was going to... I think it was fine, yeah. honestly. I don't really have a qualms. Porter wasn't getting back into that fight anyways. It is it is funny, though, because the whole sequence leading up to that round was was Crawford realizing, wait, what do you mean he's ahead on points? Well, I guess i got to put him down yeah. now, which is scary. Because, yeah. again, it's that same flip a switch, but, like, actually... Yep. Yeah. He just... Yeah, it was, but, a, um, it, was, it was actually a really similar, slightly different circumstances, really similar to the one I was talking about before with Delorme, where he's having a conversation with his coach, and he's like, okay, I'm going to put him down now. And then you mm-hmm. just see him sort of refocus, and it's just like, clip, bang, and he's done. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, so anyways, um, so but the opponent that everyone's wanted Terrence Crawford to fight for years, and vice versa, is Errol Spence Jr., and... Um, I, how would you describe Errol Spence, Luke Ash, just for most people? Well, um, I have a very unpopular um, opinion on Errol Spence, which is that he's much more similar to our old English boy, Carl Froch, than anyone wants to admit. And that the immediate thought is going to be, no, that makes no sense. But uh, he's highly attritional. He's a big guy. His, his best attributes are, for me... Um, He's very good at judging his own range. He's very good at not smothering his punches. He's a high volume, high stamina, 
he's not actually that high volume, but um, high stamina, very durable, and he wins by breaking down his opponents, taking what they've thrown at him, and um, eventually finding the holes and pushing through them. And yeah, he's a mm-hmm. he's a very good fighter. Not quite sure he's as elite as a lot of people make him out to be. Yeah, so when I watched Spence, um, I used Spence's fight against Porter as, as the original starter for this, mm-hmm. just as a comparative. So we established that um, Spence kind of, Crawford beat Porter by neutralizing him and then kind of surprising him. Whereas with Spence, it, it was kind of a little different. Spence kind of chose to march him down and meet him from the start and started a lot faster than Bud did. But you also see there's a lot of differences with Spence's like um, work than Crawford's. Whereas Crawford will throw out feeler jabs that are subtle and more trap-based. You'll see Spence work faster at a lot of jabs, start mixing in those level changes immediately, and start putting pressure on guys like Garcia. Well, both Garcias. Yeah. And then uh, Porter, etc. And you'll see that... like. Spence is basically trying to get on the inside or achieve that inside foot position. And what's unique about Spence is that um, he'll often put one or two tools together to get on the inside. So you'll see him maybe like throw a rear straight, but he'll also throw his head in at the same time to get under their head so that he can create an advantageous position in the infight and break their posture. And you'll also see just um, there's constant work he does on the inside, such as turning them using his arms or hooks into frames, jabs continuously. The whole thing is also, he he did what Bud did, but actively looked for that clinch to deal damage as opposed to, like, negating it. And, um, but against Porter, it kind of presented its problem that Bud didn't experience, because it kind of meant that he kind of could allow Porter to come to him and let Porter establish some initiative. So it meant he got tagged a lot on entry, it meant that he got tagged a lot, like, sometimes in between those clinch breaks, even if he could always, like, set it up a little better. And there's a lot of cool inside game functionality with what he does, like, because he definitely gets where to position himself, turn the opponents, make their arms heavy, put pressure on them to break them down and then maul them, like you said. But um, he he basically, like, always has those little margins of error where um, basically he forgets himself kind of defensively and then just gets kind of tagged for a second. And then instead of, like, deciding to, like, recommit to it, he kind of instead just decides, okay, I'll just push back and hit you back harder. And to be fair, it works, but, like, because you can tell, like, he breaks guys down pretty badly and even put Porter down for a second off of, like, a break. Um, But it's, like, it, it, it kind of is, like, kind of a problem I think if he meets someone who is going to take advantage of those margins yeah so I would say I don't think it's even errors and him forgetting himself I just don't think he has that those little subtleties on the in the transitions I would say, I would call it um, it, it just doesn't have mm-hmm. them in his game he doesn't have them built in he's not forgetting to do it it's just something that he doesn't really do like he's always kind of a bit in a straight line his head, you know, he takes it off center line, but it's not off off center plane. He's not protecting himself. He's not protecting his body as well as he should. And I think those are the little. He's things. very, yeah. He's very more offensive for the sake of like driving offense than like 
making any kind of defensive allocations yeah. and kind of a fight, really. And, and that's uh, it's not necessarily gone. It's not necessarily a bad thing because his offense is potent enough, and he's definitely not. He's far, far, far from a defensive void. But it's just he kind of like pushes more for that activity and offense and kind of physicality as opposed to like doing the little things that are going to keep him safe. Yeah, I think the, the way to you know the way to think about it possibly comparatively is that Porter is already. I mean, one four. He's not small at one four seven, but it's he's at the limit of his of his you know where he would be fighting. He's already fighting some bigger guys. We're talking about him fighting Errol Spence and considering an even an even exchange. Whereas if you thought about Spence fighting up at one five four, because Spence, let's be clear about this, is massive at welterweight. He's a he's a big big guy. Mm-hmm. If but if you thought about him fighting bigger guys, you're not. I, at least I don't sit here thinking you know. He's going to find the little nooks and crannies, and you know, if I think about him thinking fighting at one five four, it's like if he's fighting anyone of even equal skill set, he's going to get hurt. Like he's going to find that hard. Yeah, it, it it's kind of like what we were talking about with Josh Taylor a second ago, just in kind of some different kind of directionality, because it's like, like you see you see all the skills, but it's often such a physical imposed st- yeah. style. That you kind of think to yourself, well, how's that going to work once he goes up or meets someone who can meet him there? Yeah. Or like, because at some point that like physicality is kind of a crutch, and if it's not a crutch, what happens then? Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, and again, and you know, linking it specifically to Crawford, I don't think Crawford's, you know, there. You say Crawford, as you said, Crawford is a very strong. Welterweight. I don't think he's stronger than Spence, but I think he's strong enough. I think he said this in your Twitter, um, in your little Twitter thing. He's strong enough that uh, mm-hmm. Spence isn't going to be able to manhandle him either. And how is Spence going to handle that? Because we know how Porter handles something that he does not work in. He does something else, and he's got so many tools in the bag. And I don't know that Spence has another answer if he finds that he can't push. Either that he can't push Crawford back, or that Crawford isn't there to be pushed back, because that's the other thing Crawford could do, and he's got the tools to do it, is to just not be there very much when when Spence tries to push into view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's like you you see Spence basically like apply a lot of tools when he's putting on the pressure, like how he mixes things up on the inside and outside, right behind his lead hand and all that. But you also kind of have a question of just like, well, what happens if someone plays with him back? So it's like on the outside, Crawford like can switch between both stances. So it, it we've seen enough Spence like in the close stance matchup to know that like Spence is going to try to jab. The other guy's going to try to catch him with that straight right, etc. What if Crawford makes it a southpaw southpaw? How does that change things for Spence around a bit with his pressure? Because he's going to have to deal with some like adjustments there. And Crawford's going to be the guy who's going to be like, okay, I can catch your jab and then jab back at you. And that might mitigate some of your effectiveness unless you can outposition me. Hey. Yeah. And it, it may well be that Spence is versatile enough to still push him back and just it eventually collides to a physical or well, like – on the inside kind of fight where both of them are kind of trying to muscle each other around and get those moments but you kind of just have to think about these little things and it's like 
the thing for me that always makes me just feel Crawford has the edge here is kind of just like in those little moments where Spence has to push for like more offense, he always like has little exposures. And there are moments in Crawford's fights where he sees like a frame has been made or, oh, this guy has positioned his head just enough where if I lean back a little bit, I can hit him with an uppercut on the inside really hard to break this. And it's like those little things can add up really quickly. And Terrence Crawford, again, is the guy who's going to make a mile out, out of those little things. Yeah, that's pretty much. I think we've both arriving at a similar thing, a similar view of this fight. Is um, yeah, he's gonna. Yeah. His Spencer's gonna find it hard. I wouldn't write him off because he is a, he is bigger than anyone Crawford's fought, so we don't know for sure. And he does come in very fast and relatively safely. Like we know he takes he takes shots. But the one thing I would give Spence is mm-hmm. he he's never off balance. Like he ne- when he's rushing, rushing no. you know what happened to Crawford is um, you know Crawford's rushing in and eventually he rushed in. Porter wasn't where he uh, Crawford wasn't where he thought he was going to be, so he leaned a bit further, leaned out of position, and that's when Crawford caught him. And Spence isn't going to do that. Like Spence doesn't take his feet, doesn't uh, no. get off balance. And, and the other thing so, is, the other thing is, although I gave an argument a second ago for how Crawford might deal with that jab. Spence's jab is versatile enough that Crawford isn't going to control the distance immediately either or necessarily have an advantage because for all we know, sometimes with high-paced fighters, they can force the other guy to have to work more outside of their comfort zone. And Crawford likes to set traps and he can throw, but maybe there's a theory to be said that perhaps Crawford kind of has to read things first in order to get yeah. those things but who yeah. really who really really knows it's yeah. not like anyone comes into these fights unprepared yeah and i think it's it is fair to say that crawford his defense is excellent he does sometimes take shots you know if you compare him to defensive wizards like he takes more shots than canelo would in similar situations he takes more shots than floyd weather would have when he's not mm-hmm. a similar fighter and so it you know it's possible to say that he isn't doing that just because he wants, you know, I said before that he does, he lets fighters get shots off to coach them into doing something, but he probably isn't doing that all the time. Like, it's not every shot that, 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 that would be giving, giving him too much credit to suggest that nearly every shot he takes is there to, to, to encourage his opponent to throw it again. Like, he is taking shots that he doesn't want to be taking because he's just not a, He's not as defensive. He's not defensively focused. He does defensive things, but he does those defensive things in order to find more holes, and that means he is taking shots to give a shot, even if it's not like you know, it's not Golovkin style. But he's leaving himself a little bit open to to take a big yeah, hard th- shot from a big hard man. That's what ultimately, like I, I think, still makes this fight. Now nah, you're fine. <laughs> What I think makes this fight still very interesting, no matter what, though, is it's still between two guys who are still very offensively focused. It's just their trajectories differ. One of them wants to kill you based upon what you show him, and then the other one will try to run over everything you have and maul you. And inherently, those two styles are probably going to clash really, really well together to make a really exciting fight. Um, I think just for us from like a scientific perspective, we just personally favor Crawford a little more there. But I, I don't think it will not be competitive. I'd be shocked if it wasn't. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it is a, it, it should be a great fight, and I hope it happens. And um, 
Crawford is now a free agent because he's been with top rank for a while and um, he made Bob Arum cry after the fight. Um, did you see that bit? That was fun. Uh, oh no, Bob Arum isn't dead yet? Uh, no, he's still alive. I mean, uh, uh, how how is he still alive? He's like ancient now, Yeah. Well, I think. Jesus. Yeah, he's like 90-something. But no, they were sitting at the press conference and uh, uh, next to each other and someone was asked about um, are you going to renew with um, top with top rank have you made a decision yet and uh, Crawford just sits right next to Bob and Bob's got a face like a hit dog and Crawford's just like um, well um, Bob couldn't get me the Spence fight when I was signed with him so he's not going to get me the Spence fight now that I'm not signed with him and I think I'm going to move on basically <laughs> <laughs> and Bob Arum you know Bob Arum is always this cocky kid it's just like looking very sad so so, so here's hoping that he uh, that he gets the gets gets it done. Yeah, I I, I think um, although I'm skeptical about it happening, I think everyone wants to see that fight. But everyone's been saying that for years yeah. now, so yeah. n- not much else to say. It's it's still one of the fights for the sport. Yeah, and it'd be awesome if it it's, happened. It's almost as good as um, Andrade versus Charlo. You know, it's... <laughs> I'm making a, a, a uh, reference that you possibly didn't see. Yeah. Chris Mannix last weekend telling the world I, that that was the oh best fight man. to make. I, no, I, I, know, I know the reference. Lucas, my tone here is complete disappointment because that guy should never, ever be in a broadcast booth ever again. And no. you reminding me of him reminds me that I need to drown someone in a river. <laughs> All right. Uh, Chris Mannix. Okay. All right, so... I think we've exhausted that topic here, unless you have anything else. No, I think we're I think we're done. We can summarize. Terence Crawford is really very good, a very smart and unreadable fighter, and um, let's hope he fights Errol Spence. Um, so let's uh, mm-hmm. let's talk about next. Yeah. So uh, so who the hell are these two guys, and why is their fight really fun? Okay. So um, these two fighters are Stephen Fulton Jr. and I'm going to butcher his name. Brandon Figueroa, which um, they fight at. Oh, God, this is embarrassing. <laughs> I wrote it down and I forgot to say it. Um, they are small guys, not very, very small. They fight at Bantam, Super Bantam. They're Super Bantams. Um, they're the top two guys, I think, probably now. Um, you might know Figueroa from um, he beat the drug cheat. Louis Neri earlier in the year to everyone's great uh, that joy. That sounds really that sounds familiar yeah. but I, I genuinely don't recall yeah. off the top of my head. Okay, so let's I watch too many fights. Yeah. Let's start with Figueroa. Figueroa is a 20 24 year old American and he's pretty good. Uh, and he was fighting he's he's got this fight. They're both champions. Um, and he got his belt by uh, knocking out. Uh, did he get it in an email? Did he get it in an email like Devin Haney did? Because no. everyone knows that's how you get belts. No, he got it in the most satisfying way possible. He was fighting the drug sheet, Lewis Neri. Um, if I don't know if you know the story of uh, Lewis Neri being caught multiple times for taking uh, performance enhancing drugs and never getting punished for it. And um, eventually he moved, ended up, because he, he also keeps missing weight and never gets punished for that either. And he moved up to one two two. He had a belt, and then he fought Figueroa, and he was winning the fight. Um, 
And then, all of a sudden, he wasn't. Um, Figueroa worked him out and uh, fucked him up. And his opponent, Stephen Fulton, is a 27-year-old American. I think he's 27? Yeah, he's 27. Um, uh, he's sort of a classy guy that's flown under everyone's radar. Um, and I'm, I'm going to talk about Fulton. I'm going to describe Fulton to you first because um, it makes more sense... Uh, to describe him first and then Figueroa because what Fulton does is basically he's good at everything he's good in the clinch he's good in the pocket he's good on the outside and he's kind of just really like until I started until this fight got announced I didn't really have him you know I knew who he was I'd seen him before then I started looking at his fights and there's no area in which he's bad he's and there are the one thing that he's not good at is transitioning between those areas so he's really good in the clinch but when he's going for the clinch he's leaning in and awkward and he's really good on the outside but when he wants to come into the pocket he's standing up straight you know and um, I think Fulton's a guy worth keeping an eye on because he's 27 he's a smart guy if he sorts those things out he could be really you know really something like really pound for pound top couple and I don't know if he'll get there but it's, um, I think it's going to be worth following because he's only, you know, 27. He's just in that age where he's getting into these elite fights, and he needs to fix these little holes. And it's, um, you could be looking at a really, really good, good fighter in the in the next few years. Um, what Brandon Figueroa does, and I'm going to make a comparison that is going to sound unflattering, and then I'm going to explain it. He's a little bit like Danny Garcia. He's more fluid than Danny Garcia, but. Um, the thing about Danny Garcia, right, is he's not technically... He's a little bit rough around the edges. And um, and he gets hit. But he never stops trying things that he knows... He knows what the holes are in his opponent's game. And he never stops doing them, right? Like, um, um, I'm, I'm assuming you've seen a few of Garcia's older fights before he got beaten up by, um, by Earl Spence. Where he's been up, yeah. I he beat up Adrian Broner last I remembered. Yeah, I think. Yeah, he's beaten up quite a few guys, and he used to really annoy people because he'd be watching. You know, um, Conor Rubish actually wrote an article on um, on um, Bad Left Hook back in the day, which is basically you hate him because he's so good, Um, and it was basically about how he's he just gets things done right he, he looks rough and he throws this ridiculous hook where he's not even looking at the opponent and um, I'm not going to talk about him too much but um, but he gets it done and with Figueroa it's a similar sort of idea he's you know he's very hittable and he's you know he's, he's a little bit basic but he just doesn't stop throwing with his opponent like Fulton's going to be coming at him and Fulton's going to be trying a whole bunch of stuff um, he's a very he's a very versatile fighter, but whatever he does, Figueroa's going to be just throwing with him, and he's very good at throwing in the pocket. But he's also good when it gets inside a little bit rough. He Figueroa's good at sort of making the space for himself and landing big shots, and so I think it's going to be an exciting fight. And I don't know who's going to win. Like clearly, I have. Yeah, that sounds like one of those tough dynamics where it's like if this one guy seems okay kind of going wherever it goes, which might be a problem, but he's also possibly better in those areas than the other guy. So, yeah, yeah that's a hard one to call just just conceptually in general. Yeah, that's like even though Figueroa is younger, I would, I, you know, I would pick um, Fulton to have the better, the better higher ceiling. But just in the matchup between them right now, 
I don't know who I'm picking. You know, it's a very, very good fight. Like, um, it's really worth sitting down, sitting down and watching. I think, and I hope I'm right about that. But, um, but yeah, because obviously the, the the fight that everyone else is talking about is um, is Tiafimo Lopez versus Cambios, Cam, Georges Cambiasos. I've butchered his name, and that's just not a very good fight. I'm sorry, Cambosos. It's just not a very good fight. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, but it's just, you know. I I don't. Um, all I'm going to say is every time our colleague Taylor Higgins sees Teofermo Lopez, he's reminded of uh, yeah. Lomachenko's demise. And, well, I hope they rematch eventually. I think I speak for all of us. Yeah. And yeah, uh, I don't think this is going to get in the way of that. Like, um, Cambosis is better than some people are giving him credit for. He's a neat, tidy pocket boxer, but he's he's too open and he's too hitable, and he's going to get knocked out. Mm-hmm. I think I could be totally wrong about yeah. that, but I don't think there's much in this. The promotion is mm-hmm. much more interesting than the fight itself. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Tiafermo Lopez is, is like, you've seen the discipline, you've seen the opportunism, you've seen the dynamicism from him, so it's like, it, it, it's going to take someone pretty good to, like, get the better of him, even if there are areas where he's pretty uncomfortable in. So it's like, if you're giving him openings consistently, he's not a good opponent to give openings to. Yeah, exactly. And not Cam, Cam, Camposos is quite... Um... It's just a bit upright and you know in exactly the wrong place for those big big counter hooks and things that he that uh, that Lopez not to throw like it's just it's not just the skill level gap the skill level gap isn't as bad as some people think it is I think but it's a bad style matchup for him as well and it's just not going it's not going to end well I wouldn't have thought um, but mm-hmm. but you know he's got his shot and uh, I hope he takes it just because of Tiafimo's dad who is an arsehole <laughs> you know, talking about Sean uh, Porter, talking about Sean Porter's dad, um, being uh, slightly irritating. Uh, Tiafimo Lopez's dad. It's don't just box and don't. <laughs> That's why, if you ever box, for those listening, don't ever have a dad. That way, a, <laughs> I mean, you might suck, you might suck, but you may not get berated on public television or be embarrassed by your dad. Or he might turn out to be Enzo Calzaghi. You never know. No. You know? Shh, we can't use that example. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, look at Lukash ruining my bad jokes. Um, yeah, I, I th- would you say that covers the topic for today? I think so, yeah. There's not, you know, not too much more to say about, you know, basically my recommendation is if you have to watch one, watch uh, the lesser known um, Fulton versus Figueroa and uh, maybe it might hopefully have something to talk about from that next week um, so mm-hmm. thanks guys and uh, good see you next time see ya